0: What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the <laughs> hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about?
1: Hi, I'm Daniel Pletka. I'm Mark Deason welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Before I ask Mark what the hell is going on, let's remind everybody who's listening that we love our listeners. Share with your friends. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to review us. Don't forget to reach out with ideas. We really enjoy hearing from you. And now to the business at hand. Mark, what the hell?
2: What the hell is we are getting out of Afghanistan. Again, <laughs> President Biden has announced that by September 11th, 2021, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, he has said that is the deadline for complete U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. He has explicitly said that our withdrawal will not be conditions-based because that is a avenue for endless war. And so it doesn't matter what the Taliban does. It doesn't matter if they invite al-Qaeda back in. It doesn't matter if they march on Kabul and overthrow the government. It doesn't matter if they start creating a safe haven for the terrorists who attacked us on September 11, 2001. We're getting out come hell or high water and we're gonna do it on the anniversary of their great victory when they hit the Twin Towers and the Pentagon, the building that I was in when it happened. And uh, they're going to have a second victory to bookend their first victory. What the hell, Danny?
1: Before we get to our interview, I want us to take on what I imagine to myself, some of our listeners and some of our adversaries are saying to themselves right now, Mark Thiessen and Danny Pletka never met a war they didn't like. We've been in Afghanistan for 20 years. Look what's going on. We went in, we got Osama bin Laden, but no, that wasn't enough, right? No, we have to stay there. We have to stay there trying to fix the country, trying to give them a better government, losing our troops there. You know, what's wrong with you people? That's so a fair question. Now, speaking, for, you know, for that member of the peanut gallery. Let's take that on for a sec.
2: Absolutely. So first, number 1, the mission in Afghanistan was never to create a Jeffersonian democracy, to rebuild the nation, to do any of those things. The mission in Afghanistan has been, and continues to be, to stop them from using it as a safe haven to carry out another attack like we did on September 11th. And by that standard, which is the only standard that we should have set for the effort, it's been a resounding success. In fact, one of the greatest successes, uh, American geopolitical successes of the uh, the last two centuries. Uh, They have not been able to use Afghanistan as a safe haven to carry out another attack on the American homeland, not because they stopped trying. It's not because they gave up, it's not because they've gone away, though it's tempting to think that because we haven't been hit for 20 years, but it's because the United States has been engaged in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, across Africa, in Yemen and other places where the terrorists have reared their ugly head and tried to create safe hit. And the reality is that in Afghanistan, we do not have 300,000 troops. We do not have 30,000 troops. We have fewer than 3000 troops in Afghanistan. We have more troops in Japan, Germany, South Korea, Kuwait, Italy, the United Kingdom, Qatar, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, and Spain than we have in Afghanistan today. That's not put together. That's each country. Yes, individually. (laughs) We have 3,000 troops in Spain. We have 3,500 troops in the UAE, 5,000 troops in Bahrain, 8,000 troops in Qatar, 9,000 troops in the United Kingdom, 12,000 troops in Italy, 35,000 troops in Germany. And here's the irony, Danny, okay? So in the same day, that the Biden administration announced its withdrawal of all U.S. troops from Afghanistan. They announced that they are increasing the number of troops in Germany, reversing the Trump administration's decision to withdraw about 12,000 troops from that country. Now we can debate whether that was a good idea or not, but the reality is they're withdrawing all U.S. forces from a country where there's an active terrorist threat, but surging forces into a country where our troops have been stationed since 1945 to prevent a Soviet tank invasion over the Fulda gap a threat that no longer exists. Soviet Union doesn't exist, Taliban and Al-Qaeda do? Where do we need our troops? We need them in the place where the danger to the American homeland is. We're not engaged in nation building in Afghanistan. We are not even engaged for the most part in combat, except for some discrete special operations operation against terrorist targets. We are in a train and equip mission that is helping the Afghan security forces take out terrorists, do the most of the fighting for us. We provide them with force enablers, air support, mission planning, and those sorts of things. And that is a very, very low price to pay for the security that that presence has given us. Uh, So I just do not understand the desire to get to zero. I understand the desire to not have the major military presence of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of troops across the world. I don't understand why it's so hard to maintain 2,500 troops in Afghanistan for the the bang for the buck that they give us to protect the American homeland. It should be a two-minute decision in the first minutes for coffee. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's a good line. Now rumsfeld
2: Rumsfeldism. You love yeah. them when you're not connected to Donald Rumsfeld.
1: That's so true. I'm starting to believe you haven't had any, an independent thought since you worked for him. Here's a compliment and here's a comment. First, part of our problem is that what you just said in the space of two minutes without the first minute for coffee is more leadership than we've had from a president of the United States in the last 13 years.
2: I'm announcing my candidacy (laughs) right here on
1: this podcast. You got my vote. Let me tell you, because if the president of the United States, the commander in chief, whether he's a Republican or a Democrat, doesn't take the time to explain to the American people what it is that we are doing in a country, we should not be surprised that the American people have no freaking idea because they've got better things to think about than what's going on in Kabul. So that's number one. Number two I think we have a labeling problem. We are not fighting a war in Afghanistan. We are maintaining a holding operation, if you want to really call it that. We are training Afghan troops, and we are equipping Afghan troops. But we are also engaged in a separate mission that is not part of the military mission, which is to help to establish a more stable Afghan government. Now, I think the problem- That's where you lose people, Danny. I'm not worried about the losing people part of this not because I'm not worried about losing people, but let me explain. I'm not worried about the losing people part of this because I think the two missions are very separate and I think we could continue one of the missions without the other. The other is in some ways going on and is part of what we do in all sorts of places where we don't have a military presence, where we are trying to support better governance, where we are are trying to support women's rights, where we're trying to support religious freedom with AID, with the UN, with our allied countries. And that's a separate operation And that separate operation is not dependent 100%, at least, on our military being there. But all of our leaders have conflated the two and basically said, we can't take our soldiers out until we solve that problem number two, until there's democratic governance. And the bottom line is, it's going to be a really long time before there's democratic governance in Afghanistan. That's our goal not mission critical here. What is mission critical here is keeping our guys there in order to continue to train and equip and to support the Afghan armed forces that are doing all of the fighting. And I'm sorry, that was sort of a long explication. But I really do think it's important to separate those two things out. And we haven't had a President Republican or Democrat has been able to do that.
2: I agree with you 100%, Danny, and look, I'll give you another Rumsfeldism because you like them so much, which is that we don't need to have a Jeffersonian democracy in Afghanistan. What we need simply is a government that doesn't wake up in the morning and think that America's what's wrong with the world and want to kill us, right? And so that's the goal in Afghanistan is to not allow the Taliban to come back and a government that does wake up every morning and think America's what's wrong with the world that we're the great Satan and do want to come and kill us or at least harbor people who do. So over time, if Afghanistan evolves into a, a stable democracy, that's great. But what I care about is that they're nominally allied with us, that they want to share the same mission of whacking the terrorists and the Islamic radicals who want to come and get us here at home. And a small U.S. troop presence in that country is a very, very small price to pay to allow that to happen. I want to also point out another thing, which is, you know, people are all people talking about, you know, the sacrifices and everything that we make in Afghanistan. And there have been enormous sacrifices at the height of the war in terms of lives and treasure and uh, family and people who came back with terrible injuries and all the rest of that. That's not what's happening right now. According to Stars and Stripes last year, just four Americans were killed in action in Afghanistan and that was in a single operation actually after the peace accord was initially uh, supposed to be signed. If you want to contrast that, July 30th, 2020, eight Marines and a sailor were killed in a single amphibious assault vehicle accident off the coast of Southern California. So the deaths in Afghanistan are comparable to the kinds of deaths that we're having almost anywhere that American troops are stationed. We are not undergoing massive casualties. We're not suffering, you know, the kinds of casualties that we had earlier in the war. So the idea that we cannot sustain a 2,500 troop presence in Afghanistan in order to prevent the Taliban from coming back into power, inviting Al Qaeda back in, creating options for us the Islamic State to come in and set up safe havens as well. It's just so short-sighted. I literally don't understand it.
1: Well, I want to get to our conversation, but I always think it's an interesting day when I start it with the Washington Post-lead editorial, quote, Biden takes the easy way out of Afghanistan. The likely result is disaster. In my inbox, I have a press release from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell slamming the president's decision on Afghanistan. When Mitch McConnell and the Washington Post agree, maybe it's a moment that the Biden administration ought to open its ears and end its politicking over our national security. We've got a great guest to talk about this today. He served in Afghanistan. He served in Iraq in the Air Force. And uh, he is a member of Congress representing Illinois. Adam Kinzinger was elected actually in 2010 from the 11th district. And uh, he's really he is the kind of guy that we often call a great American. He joined the Air Force in 2003, earned his pilot's wings, you know, piloted a stratotanker, flew missions in South America and Guam, Iraq, Afghanistan. He switched to surveillance aircraft. And then for reasons that are best known to himself, he decided to get into enemy
2: territory. territory.
1: Exactly. So here's our interview.
2: Congressman, welcome to the podcast.
1: Nice, good to be with you. So
2: you are a a veteran of both the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. You served combat tours in both countries. It seems like we're repeating history again. Joe Biden took charge of the Iraq withdrawal on the advice of Lloyd Austin, who uh, said that ISIL wasn't really a serious threat, and that turned out to be a mistake. And now he's president. Lloyd Austin is secretary of defense, and they seem to be repeating history in, in Afghanistan. As a veteran of both wars, First, tell me how you feel as a veteran and then also as a congressman.
0: It's sad and it's surreal. I mean, you know, Iraq was so predictable. We didn't know it would be called ISIS eventually, but we knew that there would be, you know, a resurrection of terrorism. And uh, we had to go back and fight it. We're, we're back again with a bigger footprint than, you know, we even had there uh, that we could have maintained. This will be the same thing. I, I think what's more tragic, you know, about Afghanistan is, There is an act of war going on there that is born by the Afghan people. The Afghan people, something like over 85 percent, want the U.S. and NATO to stay. They don't see us as an occupying power. We're there as a partner. You know, and all these people that talk about this endless war, I don't think they understand warfare because it's not a war. It is a peacekeeping operation. This is a train and advise operation. We have these going on still, for instance, in Kosovo. But this like eagerness to just end it to end for end it's sake, I just I don't get it except that, you know, political promises sometimes overrule even what, you know, America's role in the world in foreign policy. I mean, I get that people are tired of it. What are you tired of? You're probably tired of just hearing about it on the news. Fine. I understand that. But the reality is once you leave, the Afghan government will fall apart and we will have to go back or we're just going to have to accept that terrorists can have a safe haven everywhere, not to mention China exploiting the critical minerals of Afghanistan and all the other things that come along.
1: On the one hand, as you rightly described, this has really morphed into something of a peacekeeping operation. But that said, the Taliban remain in the country. The Taliban do continue to support al-Qaeda, notwithstanding the efforts of previous administrations to find a a way to negotiate our way out. For those people, and you can guess how much sympathy Mark and I have for the endless war crowd, but let's just argue from their perspective for a second. It will have been 20 years since 9-11. We have been in Afghanistan all those years. We've been with our NATO allies, operating, yes, at up-tempo and low-tempo, but we really haven't delivered a stable and peaceful Afghanistan that we can leave. Understanding that, shouldn't we just be washing our hands of the place and you know saying aloha? Yeah, I think it's a compelling argument until people look at the
0: reality that, you know, yeah, Afghanistan is struggling and they're going to probably struggle for a lot longer. But let's think about one thing that hasn't happened in 20 years. We have not had an attack on U.S. soil that was planned and born out of Afghanistan. You know, sometimes it's like the success of, you know, whether it's airport screening, right, or whether it's counterterrorism operations or whether it's community policing you can never quantify activities that didn't happen because of those actions. And, but what you can do is, you know, look at the past and say, yeah, the Taliban still exists. They have not changed their aims. They've, in fact, made the decision to stop negotiating now because of this announcement. We look at what happened when the U.S. surged in Afghanistan and President Obama said in the same breath that we'd be out in 18 months. You know how that works. And so the problem is you can be a victim of your own success. And I think that's where we are there now. And I just, you know, again, you think about the 50 or sometimes 60, 70, 100 Afghan soldiers that are killed almost daily fighting the Taliban and taken on this war, and they are emboldened by a small footprint of the US. Here's the other thing that's really tragic in all this. Our NATO allies are far more lean ahead on this than we are. When has that ever happened before, when NATO has actually been the one pulling us? And the other thing is this. At a time when we are talking about the challenges in Iran, we're talking about a potential Russian invasion of Ukraine, we're talking about an increasingly aggressive China, What message does this send around the world? It sends a message of U.S. retreat. The Taliban have always said, you know, America has the weapons or America has the toys. We have the time. We're proving that out. And if now the response, for instance, to Russian provocations in Ukraine is U.S. stiffly worded messages, maybe a couple of sanctions, but no military action, for instance, Then what does that tell China, who is the ultimate aim and what we need to be taking on? It's a bad message all around. And once again, the United States engages in a war, gets people on their side and leaves them out to dry. It's really a sad commentary. And I just I have been shocked that this decision was made since I found out about it yesterday. And uh, I I just I can't understand it. He just uh, Joe Biden with the stroke of a pen will have accomplished every wish of Rand Paul and President Trump. Here's
2: the other thing is the, the choice of the date of September 11th, 20 years after the war. He looks at that and thinks, oh, that sounds, that makes sense I need to bookend the war 20 years. That's turns 9-11 into a victory for the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. It's our day of retreat is the day that we were attacked 20 years early.
0: So, you know, it's my, my wife, she's a comms expert. And, you know, we were talking about this yesterday after I had uh, the call with the administration. And I was like, what the? What was this about? And same thing with her is like, at what filter does it go through where you say, hey, a great time to be out of Afghanistan is the 20th anniversary of 3,000 dead Americans from something that was planned out of Afghanistan. I get it. If you want to leave, it's a decision. I'm going to totally disagree with it. But it's it's especially insulting to make the 20th anniversary of 9-11 the date. There's no point to it. And I guarantee you the Taliban and Al-Qaeda are celebrating in their caves today, and they're going to be having an extra celebration with extra cake on 9-11. It's really incredible.
1: I think one of the most interesting things about this is you just slammed Joe Biden, and in the same breath, you slammed Donald Trump and Rand Paul. This is not a partisan problem. Donald Trump desperately wanted to skedaddle from Afghanistan with exactly the same mindless rationale that Joe Biden is exhibiting. Now, you actually spent more time in service in Iraq. And I think it's important for us to remind people what happened uh, because, you know, we've seen this movie, right? We know how it ends. So in 2011, things had basically eased up in Iraq where you fought where a lot of american soldiers sacrificed their lives. Now without relitigating iraq one way or the other, things were pretty smooth in 2011 when barack obama decided to withdraw and handed off to his then vice president the responsibility for overseeing that. What happened and is there any chance that afghanistan could be different?
0: I guess there is a chance, you know, it's it's interesting because if you look back at President Obama's speech, he said we're leaving behind a stable and free Iraq, right? Something like that my time came during the surge so I went in 08 at the really kind of the height of the surge and then 09 when we were seeing that it was clearly successful and I mean my experiences in those two years were vastly different and I in fact that's the reason I ran for Congress was because President Obama had won and said we're getting out of Iraq and I'm like it's gonna be an epic mistake well here's where we are in Afghanistan is there a chance it could be different possibly I mean it's gonna depend The devil is going to be in the details of what what is a withdrawal? You know, what does State Department security forces look like? You know, all those kinds of detailed questions. But the reality is when you talk about things like women's rights and you talk about all these things that are very important, you cannot have any of that without security. Nothing. Security is the very bottom of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, maybe right around food and water. And the second you deprive security of anywhere... People go to base emotions, so women's rights won't matter anymore. the right to vote won't matter anymore. The generation of people, basically my age and younger in the civil society in Afghanistan that are trying to change everything there, they'll be run out of town and we'll be back to where we were because we didn't have this isn't Vietnam. This isn't 500,000 troops where a hundred are dying a day. You know, we look back at Vietnam and say, how we executed that and how we left was a massive mistake. This is 2,500 troops right? This is 5,000 NATO partner troops. This is nothing like Vietnam. And uh, to do this, I don't get, but I think the details in terms of can Afghanistan be different will be, uh, the the devil will be in the details. I have a hard time seeing though how the withdrawal of troops is going to do anything to make a better future for Afghanistan. The other ultimate thing about this too, at a time when we're going into negotiating with Iran, the Iran nuclear deal, and we now have said, Look, the Taliban aren't abiding by the deal they agreed to. Big shock, right? So we're just going to leave. What is that going to do when we go to the table with Iran? What's that going to do when we go to the table with Russia and Ukraine? What's that going to do when we go to the table with China? What's that going to do when we're trying to talk about China coming into climate change issues? All they're going to say is the U.S. is desperate for agreements. That's exactly what happened in Iran. And that's what's happening here in Afghanistan. And We all know it. Everybody sees through it. And you can put whatever spin you want on it, but it doesn't matter.
2: You know, Congressman, to play devil's advocate, there's a lot of people out there who, who will listen to what you just said about women's rights in Afghanistan. And, you know, they'll say, yeah, we wish there were women's rights in Afghanistan and all the rest of it. But, you know, we don't need Americans dying for women's rights in Afghanistan. The reason we send our troops around the world is to protect the American homeland and protect American interests. And why do we still need to be in Afghanistan 20 years after 9-11? Why should my son or my daughter Risk their lives in the mountains of Afghanistan, not for women's rights, because I'm not one, I'm not willing to give my son up for, or daughter up for women's rights. I'm willing to take that risk if it means that they might not carry out another attack on the homeland. Why is
0: that a real threat? Yeah, I think that's an important point. And I think that is the ultimate reason for the US to ever engage anywhere in self-interest, right? You know, with the rare exception, if you have something like Rwanda, you know, a massive genocide that's preventable, something like that. Like we we need to stand for human rights. But U.S. military engagement should be limited generally to what's in our self-interest. Here's why Afghanistan is in our self-interest, because, you know, we were attacked, quite honestly. We have learned that using a small footprint of American military, like the campaign against ISIS, like we have in Afghanistan, can actually pay off in massive dividends But I also think we have to get existential for a moment and think back to at the end of World War II, you actually had a generation of war fatigue. That was real war fatigue. You know, the economy was revolutionized. Many, many men and women died on behalf of the United States. And at that time, you could have brought everybody home from Europe, said Europe deals with something, but we stayed engaged. And ultimately three generations later through our example and through our posture, we destroyed the Soviet Union and brought freedom to millions. And this is where I believe that the US mission in the world is to be that example of self-governance, to use our power judiciously, but also in a revolutionary way to change the world we live in, because it benefits us both in not being attacked here at home, both in creating allies that you can't recruit enemies out of. I've been to, for instance, Kenya to a village in Kenya. It's a long story I will make really quick, where you saw what a kid from University of Illinois did through USAID revolutionize this entire village, you know, in their economy by just teaching them some ag principles. And you'll never recruit an enemy of the United States out of that. Where freedom reigns, you don't find the enemies. And so, plus the fact that you look at U.S. engagement in the world, this is how I would always counter people like Rand Paul, who's not a serious person, is to say, you know, look, bring all the boys home, who cares what happens to the rest of the world. Our entire manufacturing economy was built because of our engagement in the world. Because in Japan and in Europe, all the manufacturing was destroyed. We were the country that inherited that. That's why you had this massive middle-class and manufacturing growth in the US. Our involvement in the world is not just a morally good thing too. But it also helps us to write rules and to receive things economically that benefit us. I could get spiritual about it, but the reality is involvement in Afghanistan, you know, it's not a hundred thousand troops. We are invited, we're wanted there, keeps us safe and also keeps us in a moral position to make future decisions.
1: Let's talk for a second about where we've gone wrong. So we know now looking back what the mistakes were or at least some of the mistakes were in the 1990s that allowed Al Qaeda to build up and to plan uh, massive operations against us and ultimately to uh, uh, successfully attack us. And that's why we went into Afghanistan was because of 9-11. That's why more tangentially we went into Iraq. Since that time, The Taliban and Al Qaeda have basically remained in Afghanistan. ISIS has grown and then been pushed back in Iraq. It's spread to Syria. We now see both ISIS and Al Qaeda and related groups spreading like wildfire across Africa, Yemen. You know, this is a big and a growing problem. Haven't we made strategic mistakes in Afghanistan? I mean, I understand that winning may not be achievable. But it seems that- Losing we-
0: is. <laughs> yeah, it is.
1: Yes, and also pursuing the same strategy and expecting a different outcome seems to me to be a, a, you know, a failure. That's what Frank Kagan talks about when he talks about Afghanistan. Doesn't the military own some share of this? And how do we look at these challenges going forward?
0: I think certainly the military owns some share of this. I mean, think about even very basic things like you know, the Air Force. I'm an Air Force guy. You know, we burn the life out of F-16s, you know, flying six hour caps over Afghanistan over and over again. Why don't we have, you know, fighter units that also have a light attack, you know, mission that they have attached. They can go fly cheaper aircraft, do it without burning the life of the F-16 and be more effective because that is a basic example of how the military gets stuck in its bureaucratic inertia. You know, the F-35 is an example of that. I like the F-35. We need it. But you can see the, the inertia with that. And that happens when it comes to combat operations. You know, we know the the whole infamous attack, uh, Operation Anaconda, where the army never communicated to the Air Force certain targets and vice versa. And that's when Osama bin Laden escaped. I think if we can do Afghanistan over again, maybe you go in with a different mission set up. We are going to kick the Taliban out of power and roll. But, you know. Whatever those decisions are that we need to learn from are important. But I think it's also an an important point that's missed is in the last 20 years, you've seen, obviously, through the Arab Spring, through the growth of these different groups similar to Al-Qaeda. And people assume it's because of the U.S. involvement has kind of like struck the hornet's nest and spread everything out. The reality is just like political instability in the United States, a lot of this is related to the growth of information and the growth of the Internet communication. It used to be in the past, Al-Qaeda in the mid-90s could recruit by meeting somebody in person and they're joining. Now they can go online and recruit somebody they've never met. So I think a lot of this growth of extremism is not necessarily related to US policy. It's people with this goal from the beginning of time now have the ability to recruit and broaden their horizons to do it. They have the same technology that the United States has and so the fight against extremism is a military fight, but it's also in the mind. It's empowering moderate Muslims. It's denying an opportunity like in Syria for a fertile breeding ground of recruiting jihadists because they can go into the into the refugee camps and say the U.S. did this to you. So it's a complicated problem that I think will be with us forever. But we have to think of it differently than we have over the last you know 20 years.
1: OK, just a quick follow up, though. Sure. Right we do have to think about it differently. They've evolved. Have we evolved? Are we evolving? Or are we just waiting for another attack to galvanize us into action? I don't think we have
0: evolved as fast as they have. We, you know, of course, our tactics, our technology, stuff like that has evolved. We have, you know, different drones, different weapons, right? But what hasn't is the understanding that it's multifaceted, it's more than just military. It's diplomatic to an extent. It's information. It's economics, right? It's taking moderate Muslims and empowering them to say, go actually in you know, your religion and fight against this kind of stuff. I don't think we've evolved properly. And quite honestly, when we disregard the human tragedy in Syria and stuff like that, we just create a, a worse problem. And by the way, the other quick thing, when you walk away like Donald Trump did, you walk away from obligations. And you say that the caliphate has been defeated when it hasn't. That is exactly what these groups need. Or you leave Afghanistan. That's exactly what these groups lead because they say, look, our prophecies say that we will defeat the great United States. We just defeated them. And you will see a surge of recruitment.
2: So we talked a little bit about the Iraq precedent that, you know, Biden is repeating history of just, you know, less than a decade ago in terms of the mistake here. But there's another precedent you can go back to in Afghanistan, which is in the 1980s. So we got involved in Afghanistan in the uh, in the 70s and 80s because we were training Afghan fighters to fight the Soviet Union. And we succeeded in our mission and we drove the Soviets out of Afghanistan. And then we decided, well, what happens in Afghanistan really doesn't matter all that much to us. And so we sort of forgot about it. And the Taliban took over. Terror and Islamic radicalism festered, and twenty years later or so, that that came to hit us in uh, New York and in Washington. Are we destined to continue not learning the same lesson for now a third time in Afghanistan? Is that where we're headed?
0: I think, sadly, yeah. And. Uh... You know, again, there's. You, you look at Afghanistan. There's a younger generation that is very committed to Western values. Can that overcome? You know, what does the Afghan military and government do when we leave? Those are all open questions. But I think if all that collapses, we certainly are. And uh, again, you know, as a country, we really have a choice. We can take the Rand Paul idea and say every you know product that we consume should be made in the United States we should have no global trade. You know That sounds great when you're in front of a populist crowd. It's just not realistic. And if the world catches on fire, we don't care as long as we're fine. That will fail, but you have that choice or you have to make the decision. We are a superpower. We are the superpower. We can either engage in the world or not. And if we choose to engage, there are certain burdens that come with that. The burdens of you know having to stay in afghanistan for instance the burdens of a certain amount of world order that is relying upon us or we just accept that somebody else is going to step up to that russia or china or whoever else and we have to live by their rules and so you know it's always been a frustration for me with republicans you know i've been a republican since i was a kid but when i got elected i thought we were the party that held strong to this kind of idea of american strength around the world and instead, I see very malleable Republicans that change based on the whims. You know, Ted Cruz opposes the strike in Syria because he says we're going to be Al-Qaeda's air force. And then he turns around and attacks Barack Obama for not acting in Syria. It's like this have it all, you know, stuff when we need some consistency. But I, that's a real thing that it's hard to have the conversation on a 30-second soundbite, but what do we want to be as America? Do we want to be just a player in the world? Do we want to play be the player in the world? And think of the sacrifices if we're just a player.
1: Apropos Senator Cruz, he threw a support behind President Biden's decision to uh, surrender, as one, of, as one of our friends uh, called it. He's in- such a very bipartisan, you know,
0: <laughs> just a, well, of course he did.
1: That, you know, and this is my exit question, which you touched on, you know, Donald Trump liked to call people like us globalists. But the reality is that whether it's the Sanders, Ocasio Cortez, Quarter of, or apparently Biden, quarter of the Democratic Party, or it's, you know, Senator Cruz, or uh, at times, uh, Senator Paul, um, Senator Mike Lee, and others. The reality is that it seems like the constituency for America doing less in the world is growing, and the constituency for American leadership in the world is shrinking. As you think about the politics of this, And you think about, you know, not just your party, but your colleagues on the House side, but also on the Senate side. Where do you see this going?
0: Well, I think it's going to take some tragedy to wake us up again. I mean, if you think about Iraq, it was funny. I was actually the first member of Congress. I think I even beat McCain to the punch to call for bombing ISIS. And uh, even before they were called ISIS, we thought it was just al Qaeda resurgent, which basically was. I was the first member of Congress to call for that. And I had so many colleagues that said, I just wanted to start a war. I got the cool nickname I like, Adam Bombzinger, But then all of a sudden, six months later, all my colleagues are attacking Obama for not attacking ISIS earlier. Because what happened? We started to see heads cut off. We saw the tragedy of ISIS and we changed. I'm afraid that that's gonna be what it has to take again. And the tragedy in Afghanistan, the self-inflicted wound of this is there are no but there's no massive marches on the street of people calling for an afghanistan withdrawal if you take a poll probably most people say yeah we should leave afghanistan but it would be like number 20 on their list of concerns i've actually been impressed i've been very impressed that the american people have been able and willing to stay with afghanistan as long as they have so now you have in biden's mind a solution and a bad solution in search of a crisis or a problem that doesn't exist. There's just not, this isn't Vietnam. And so we have to continue, I think, to preach the good word of American leadership. We haven't really since W and since Reagan had any good spokesman for what American you know, strength is.
2: I was talking, speaking out against globalism years ago because it was a sovereignty debate, right? This was should we put our seed power to international institutions and supranational institutions, or should we protect American sovereignty? And the argument was, no, we need America to be a strong and independent, and powerful nation because the Pax Americana is the way to go, not putting our trust in the United Nations. And somehow, the globalist yeah. versus nationalist argument has been turned on its head, and that's
0: a I whole agree because I agree, yeah, I agree hundred percent with you. And it's turned into though now, if you want to be a member of NATO or have any trade, you're a globalist, <laughs> and it's not what's happening at all.
2: George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump all campaigned against nation building, right? I mean, all three of them. In fact, Obama and, and Trump used the exact same phrase, we need to do nation building here at home. The fact is we're not doing nation building in Afghanistan. We're not even doing combat for the most part. It's, as you said, it's a train and equip mission, but it's caught up in a larger argument about the freedom agenda, which is kind of what Bush called his view of world expanding and freedom. and that's kind of out of vogue right now. But you know, 20 years ago, we learned that the lack of freedom in Afghanistan could hit us in the streets of New York and Washington. And we just had another reminder of that with the pandemic, which is that the lack of freedom in communist China, the lack of accountable government that's answerable to its people, that tells the truth, that is transparent, has led to a global pandemic that's killed half a million Americans and millions of people around the world. And you know, we're still struggling with that. Where is the freedom agenda and
0: how do we bring it back? That's a great question. You you look at the inconsistencies of people that, you know, would talk about the freedom agenda and uh, Lindsey Graham, you know, kind of inherited the mantle of John McCain and then under Trump basically shed that mantle. And I don't know where it is. It's not in a good place. I think there's this belief that dictatorships work. They don't. You know, I think in some areas you maybe need a strong leader. Like if you look at Jordan, you have a strong leader, but there's still an outlet for parliament. You know, so it doesn't democracy doesn't have to look like the U.S. And please God, not since January 6th. Right. But dictators don't work. They're not effective. People don't like to be oppressed. It doesn't matter where you're from. And the only other option is self-governance. And it's messy. It's not pretty. It's costly. But that's the choice you either have a dictatorship that fails in human tragedy where you have a civil war like syria that has affected the world or you have a messy democracy like for instance the country of georgia which has difficulties but is not in a civil war it's a choice we have to make because i tell you what bringing all the boys home and you know ignoring the rest of the world didn't work in the 20s won't work today And uh, it's the part of living in a fallen world and having the burden of leadership, which the US does have that we benefit from greatly. It's gonna be a tough battle going forward. But look, the lazy, lazy argument is to go to people and say, you wanna just bring everybody home and you know you're lying, you know, that's not leadership but at least you might get reelected.
1: Well, on that depressing note. (laughs) Thank you. you I like puppies. That's not depressing, right? (laughs) I <laughs> love puppies. and thank you both for your service uh, and for sort of waving that, that flag of freedom. I won't speak for Mark, but as, as a relentless globalist and a rootless cosmopolitan, I believe firmly that America is better off when we are in the world and we are leading and helping and helping people as well.
0: So, <laughs> you bet. Thanks, guys. Good chatting with you. Okay, Danny, you're
2: not a globalist, and you know it. You are what we used to call an internationalist, which is a very different animal than being a globalist. I don't believe you think that we should be handing over our foreign policy to the United Nations and all these supranational institutions. You and I are internationalists, which means that we believe in vigorous American leadership in the world, forward-leaning foreign policy, U.S. presence around the world, and all the rest of that. And you know that is what Joe Biden is rejecting. He's not rejecting globalism. He's rejecting American internationalism. And he's rejecting the legacy of one of the great democratic statesmen of the 20th century, Harry Truman. Harry Truman is the one who made the decision after World War II to keep U.S. troops in Germany and Italy as a buffer against the Soviet Union in the Cold War. He's the one who decided to go into Korea and prevent uh, the communist takeover of that country and then leave troops in there. And our troops have basically been in the strategic footprint that Harry Truman established since the 1950s until today. Imagine what the world would look like if we had not followed Harry Truman's philosophy and withdrawn all of our troops from those places. They'd be speaking Russian and Chinese in Pyongyang and Berlin. And the reality is, is that that is what Joe Biden is rejecting. This model of American forward leadership around the world, the U.S. presence, the security umbrella we provided there, kept the peace, allowed Democratic allies and and pro-American governments to emerge and has benefited us in in terms of trade, and wealth, and prosperity, and that's what he's rejecting in Afghanistan today.
1: What surprises me the most about this, and it it shouldn't surprise me, because we haven't had the same Joe Biden, Senator Joe Biden, since the Obama administration, but Joe Biden used to be that guy, used to be that Truman-esque Democrat, was a man who supported NATO expansion, was a man who smacked down His fellow Democrats who didn't want to stand up for the US in the world, who didn't want to stand up for freedom. Joe Biden was a guy who made his fellow Democrats who just mouthed words about democracy and women's rights, but never actually believed in those things. He was one of those guys in the Senate who actually put his money where his mouth was, and he supported American leadership that protected the values that he held here at home. That guy is gone. And I don't
2: think he remembers that guy.
1: You know what? Literally. He may not, or he may just be drifting on the, the tide that is carrying his party you know, to Vermont. I don't know, but it is a big mistake. And what Adam said and and what we, you know, asked him about at the time is exactly right. What happens to us is we engage in these self-indulgent exercises in which we say, you know, we're going to bring our boys home and we don't care what, you know, how the Taliban or the Chinese or the Iranians interpret it. You know, I need to win the next election, damn it. And the only thing that gets us back is World War I or Pearl Harbor, right? Or an attack by 9-11
2: Korea,
1: or 9-11. And you know, you would like to think that the most powerful country in the world with a hundred years of this experience would say to itself, hmm, maybe we'd like to make low level investments beforehand so that we don't have to go through this catastrophe, this cost in lives again. But the answer is no, 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 we don't want to do that. We don't want to maintain our profile abroad. We just want to invite the terrorists and the bad guys to remind us that we're America because we can't be bothered reminding ourselves.
2: And by the way, that can happen faster than people realize. I mean, you know, the withdrawal from Iraq, it was within very short order that all of a sudden we were surging more troops into Iraq and Syria in order to tamp down the ISIS caliphate that emerged because of that catastrophic decision to withdraw prematurely. So they they created the ISIS. I mean, Donald Trump used to say that uh, Obama was the, was the founder of ISIS. That's not far from true. They were down to a few hundred people. When George W. Bush left, because of thanks to the surge, Obama inherited a pacified Iraq where the terrorists were largely defeated. And he withdrew and allowed them to regain strength and come back. And it took us years and Billions and hundreds of billions of dollars and the sacrifice of more American troops to go back in and knock them down again. And I fear the same thing might happen in Afghanistan sooner than we think putting aside the whole issue of whether they could use it as a safe haven to attack us on the homeland. So we just don't learn the lessons of history. It's it's just incredible. And you said it at the in the intro. It's it's a lack of leadership. But the American people are I've always felt are they're not globalists. They're not isolationists. They're reluctant internationalists. They don't want to go out in the world searching for monsters to destroy. But if you make the case to them that America's interests require a, a deployment of troops or a, a military engagement of some kind, and you convince them of that, they're willing to do it. And nobody has been telling them for now two administrations why we need to be if there are actually three administrations when you now add Biden's in why we're there, why it matters, what the benefits are, what the costs of what the consequences of defeat would be, and what the consequences of success are. And when you don't do that, then it shouldn't be surprising. But even so, there's no groundswell to withdraw from Afghanistan. This is a completely self-imposed thing. They're marching on the street and rioting for a lot of reasons, Danny. But it's not because of Afghanistan today. So I just don't get it. It's so short-sighted. It's so potentially catastrophic. I'm at a loss for words.
1: Well, you're never at a loss for words. <laughs> hey guys, if you disagree, see things differently, think we should have appreciated a different perspective. Let us know, write to us. Don't hesitate. We'll write back. And thanks for listening. We really appreciate every single one of you joining us for these, uh, for these, <laughs> for these weekly rant fests.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Take care.
1: Bye. Our producer is Alexa Santry. And a special thanks as well to Olivia Leslie and AEI's digital strategy and video teams.
2: Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehellataei.org.
1: Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka.
2: And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please
1: rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this.
2: Thanks for listening.